your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstarer Podcasts, War on Christmas 2020. Welcome to Potstarer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. This is the annual War on Christmas episode. The first of these I ever did back in 2017 was specifically about the War on Christmas, a largely imaginary conflict thought up by conservative Christians as an illustration as to how they're under attack by the world. The world meaning everyone that isn't them, including other Christians, by retailers and other services saying Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas. The idea that there are other holidays that fall during this time besides Christmas, celebrations and observances for other religions and ethnic traditions, it either doesn't register or they feel that because it's not Christian, it shouldn't be respected or acknowledged. Since then, I've used the War on Christmas as simply the title of the end-of-the-year holiday special for Potstar Podcast. All of them are different in their own way, so I encourage you to check out the episodes from previous years. This year, well, it's 2020, and I've wrestled with how to do this one because we're at a weird time in our nation's history. We're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, and the United States has been hit particularly hard with COVID-19. Vaccines are being rolled out right now to a limited group of people. But at this point, there isn't enough of the vaccine for every American. There are some who are skeptical of taking it for various reasons. And it may be quite a while before we see any noticeable effect on the infection or death rates. We're also transitioning from one president to another. Yet this particular outgoing president is having a really difficult time acknowledging publicly that he lost, is seeking to punish those who acknowledge his loss publicly, and is burning it all down on his way out. And I question if the incoming president truly understands the nature of the threat to democracy posed by the outgoing president or his political party. And that just scratches the surface. It's a strange time, and we've spent a lot of time in go-go-go mode. Since this is now the holiday season, while it's important to be vigilant, it's also important to rest, at least for a little bit. So let's do that. I figured that in this episode, I'll discuss some of the highlights of 2020 and my thoughts. Going into 2020, the House of Representatives had just impeached Donald Trump for abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, and he was up for removal in the Senate. I didn't think that he would actually be removed, and so when we got into January 2020 and the Senate had this farce of a trial where the Republican Party blocked the presentation of evidence and then went on to acquit him. It sucked, but it wasn't surprising. The GOP had gone all in for Trump quite a while ago, especially once they saw that 
That was the direction the party's base was headed. U.S. Senator Susan Collins of Maine, who, like every other Republican senator, save Mitt Romney, voted to acquit Donald Trump, said of her vote, quote, I believe that the president has learned from this case. The president has been impeached. That's a pretty big lesson, end quote. She went on to say, quote, he was impeached, and there has been criticism by both Republican and Democratic senators of his call. I believe that he will be much more cautious in the future, end quote. Sure, Jan. The 2020 general election was also coming up, and at that time, I believed that Donald Trump would win re-election if he were still president at that point. He did make it to the election, and thank goodness I was wrong about the outcome. But that defeat came at a very heavy cost, a cost we're still paying going into 2021. Going into 2020, I'm sure few of us, if any, expected the pandemic that was COVID-19 sweeping the globe and taking a particular toll on the United States. While the novel coronavirus was discovered late last year, we had yet to experience the impact it would make on our lives here in the United States in just a few short months. If nothing else, Donald Trump would point to the economy, the precious economy that was doing well, particularly for the wealthy and an economic recovery Trump took credit for, though the trend upward began under President Barack Obama and made the most progress under his administration. But the coronavirus, which had become a pandemic by early 2020, was threatening to take away Trump's achievement. And no, he couldn't have that. Because the virus initially hit Democratic states the hardest back in March, New York, California, Michigan, and cities such as New York City and Detroit, Donald Trump downplayed how dangerous and deadly the virus was. And not only that, as hospital emergency rooms were filling up with coronavirus patients, Donald Trump didn't just do nothing. Doing nothing would have been preferable. He and his regime worked to make the impact of the coronavirus pandemic a whole lot worse. Trump told states to obtain their own supplies instead of relying on a national stockpile. But then when states ordered their own shipments of ventilators, coronavirus tests, and other needed safety equipment, there were reports of the feds seizing them and later doling them out to states themselves according to their political whims. Notably, the Trump regime sent 170 ventilators to California, all broken. While there were huge hits taken to Democratic states when it comes to loss of life, the leadership in these states, especially Michigan and California, helped to mitigate the maliciousness of Donald Trump. Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, shut down her state's economy, as did many Democratic states, and urged the wearing of masks and social distancing, using the governor's emergency powers to enforce these orders until the state's Supreme Court ruled against her in early October. California Governor Gavin Newsom also ushered his state into a series of economic shutdowns. And when the state received the bad ventilators, as I talked about a little bit ago, he was able to enlist the help of Silicon Valley to get the 170 broken federal ventilators fixed. In addition to refurbishing the 500 old ventilators the state already had in its possession. 
Maryland Governor Larry Hogan, a never-Trump Republican, secretly ordered COVID-19 test kits from South Korea assisted by his wife Yumi, who is of Korean descent, and made sure the shipment was made secret so the federal government couldn't steal it. Donald Trump would have been fine with the residents of these states dying if it meant his re-election. And we should remember that if it weren't for the actions of state governors, including Democratic governors and a small handful of Republican governors who took the virus seriously in the beginning, the death toll would have been a lot worse. You see, the regime was fine with full-on community spread in the name of herd immunity. The idea would be to hide away the high risk while letting the low risk, including healthy young adults and children, mull around in public without any masks or social distancing. Even though there is no evidence at this point that herd immunity is even possible. And not only that, there is a risk of reinfection with COVID-19, the second time more severe than the last. In July, the former Department of Health and Human Services science advisor, Paul Alexander, attempted to push health experts to adopt this approach, criticizing the approach endorsed by Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and one of the leaders of the Federal Coronavirus Task Force. Alexander said that Fauci was inconsistent in his advice failing to acknowledge that this is a newly discovered virus and expert health professionals are altering their approach over time as more information is made available, as they should. Alexander also said in one of his emails regarding ending the pandemic, quote, We have never done this by locking down a healthy population. We protect the at-risk and let the rest of the well society go on and face the pathogen. We will know in years the impact of this, but there is no evidence that locking down a healthy, well society, a well group of people, actually works. Never." End quote. New Zealand and Taiwan would like a word with you. And while Alexander acknowledged the disproportionately higher death rate from the virus among people of color, as was noted in a statement from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC. He wasn't concerned about the actual dying. He was concerned about the election. He said, quote, If the communication is left with just the statement that minority groups are at higher risk, then on its face, this is very accurate. However, in this election cycle, that is the kind of statement coming from CDC that the media and Democrat antagonists will use against the president. They are already doing it and accusing him directly of the deaths in the African-American community from COVID, end quote. He goes on to blame socioeconomic status for the disparities, quote, due to decades of Democrat neglect, end quote. Alexander advises that instead of addressing what the regime should do about the actual dying from COVID thing, instead to push the socioeconomic status angle and that Trump's economic plan is the only way that people of color can escape these disparities. While socioeconomic status is part of the issue, to be sure, the use of a conservative trope regarding the complex issue of urban decay and democratic <coughs> black governance 
to essentially blame black people's own vote choices for their own disproportionately poor outcomes from the virus is pretty gross. Well, racial disparities in healthcare, there's more to those inequalities than simply economics, by the way. Well, socioeconomics is one of the many factors that help explain the COVID-19 disparities. Donald Trump actively made things worse through his actions in withholding aid to states with significant Black and Latino populations, and even firing up an uprising of Trump supporters within some of those states. Does Liberate Michigan ring a bell? We'll get to that part in a moment. And this indifference isn't just on one Trump staffer who is no longer employed by the regime. This goes all the way to the top. The virus was and still is killing people disproportionately in black and Latino communities, as well as other communities of color. And even as late as September, as the death toll hit 200,000 people or about 67 9-11s, Donald Trump said of the virus, it affects virtually nobody. Paul Alexander, someone Trump was more inclined to listen to at that time than someone like Dr. Fauci, also failed to note that while the elderly, the immunocompromised, and those with other risk factors are at high risk for the virus, those who are apparently healthy are not immune from dying. Also, let's talk about higher risk. There are a number of conditions that can place people at high risk for serious complications for the virus, including high blood pressure, diabetes, asthma, that are common in the U.S. population and not just among the elderly. Another factor that places people at high risk for serious coronavirus outcomes is obesity. And let me be clear here, I'm not mentioning this to fat shame in any way. The reason why I bring this up is this. 36.5% of adults are obese and close to 20% of children are obese. When we're talking about the idea of sheltering only the at-risk and leaving everyone else out to be infected, the high-risk group is a significant portion of our population. Probably at least half of us, if not more, including plenty of people who are otherwise pretty healthy and fully able to get around and absent the virus are likely to live fairly normal lives and are not likely to just keel over and die soon anyway. We, the taxpayers of the United States, are paying the salaries of people who are seeking to engineer our deaths. The actions governors took to lock down their states in the name of public health upset the president, the ultra-wealthy, and many in the corporate world who felt that the economy should have kept going without any hiccups. When it comes to capitalism, the show must go on, right? And these moneyed interests developed groups that were made to appear grassroots, a practice called astroturfing, in an effort to pressure state governments to reopen the economy. This led to reopen protests in several places across the country and included armed and unmasked protesters. And in the case of Michigan, a group of demonstrators stormed the state capitol and lined up armed in front of the governor's office. Did Trump respond with the military tear gassing demonstrators for a photo op or federal agents disappearing protesters? 
Did he say that he should invoke the Insurrection Act to end protests? All of which he did against Black Lives Matter protests in the weeks and months to come? Nope. Donald Trump tweeted, Liberate Michigan! Liberate Minnesota! Liberate Virginia! He also went on to say regarding the protest in Michigan, quote, The governor of Michigan should give a little and put out the fire. These are very good people, but they are angry. They want their lives back again, safely. See them, talk to them, make a deal, end quote. Did he say that in regards to the George Floyd protests in Minneapolis or Portland? Or the Jacob Blake protests in Kenosha? Or the Breonna Taylor protests in Louisville? Nope. In Trump's world, people who want to reopen the economy so they can get a haircut or go golfing are very good people. But people who don't want to continue to see black people murdered by police, acting as judge, jury, and executioner, aren't very good people. Rules for thee, but not for me. We see you, Donnie. Trump's rhetoric seems to have also emboldened bad actors to do more than simply engage in armed protest, block hospital entrances in Lansing, Michigan, and scare Democratic legislators into wearing bulletproof vests. A group of 13 men who were part of the Wolverine Watchmen, a military group in Michigan with ties to the far-right Boogaloo movement, were arrested for a plot to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer. Six of the men were charged with federal crimes, while seven were charged in state court. The group had also apparently discussed kidnapping Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. The group was angry at both governors for executing coronavirus lockdown orders. While there's some question as to if Trump's tweets to liberate Michigan and liberate Virginia emboldened them, some of the group members allegedly placed Trump on a hit list in addition to other politicians, Democrat and Republican. The idea that Trump put something like that out there and a group took those ideas to the next level is a bit disconcerting to say the least. That said, there has been more to the pandemic than the public health threat, overcrowded hospitals and mass death. Though of course, that's the most important part. Yet it doesn't take away from the fact that people have felt the pain in other ways. The virus led to an economic downturn. I contend it would have happened whether there were state lockdowns or not, because we would be in a situation like many states are in now, community spread, high infection rates, increasing death tallies just earlier, and there would have been shutdowns and work slowdowns eventually. That downturn has meant mass furloughs and layoffs with a jobless rate that at its height rivaled the Great Depression. While there has been improvement in the unemployment rate since, there are still people out of work and others who are deemed essential workers and must work with the public, exposing themselves to the virus. There are people who have been forced to take pay cuts and there are small business owners who own restaurants, bars, and other service-oriented businesses that have experienced major losses in revenue, and some of whom are closing and may not be able to reopen. People are hurting and some are unable to pay their bills or their rent and can't even pay for food. And in a country where healthcare coverage is all too often tied to employment, a public health disaster coupled with an economic disaster 
is the stuff of nightmares. Yet here we are, welcome to 2020. While Canada and many European countries gave decent stipends to their citizens, the United States gave many Americans, those making under a certain threshold in income in the previous year, a one-time check for $1,200 back in April, eight months ago. And low-interest, forgivable small business loans offered under the stimulus bill went to such small businesses as Potbellies, Shake Shack, and Ruth's Chris. For their part, Shake Shack and Ruth's Chris were shamed into giving back their loan money. But nevertheless, the process was indicative of how businesses that were already advantaged, whether they had the favor of the regime or were top-tier members of major banks such as J.P. Morgan Chase, were more likely to obtain the money than businesses owned by regular Joes. The pandemic exposed and expanded the existing gulf between rich and poor in this country. As the pandemic went on, more and more people, regardless of partisanship or ideology, were feeling the pain. It wasn't just black folks or Latino people or people of Middle Eastern descent dying from coronavirus. White Americans were also dying and their stories were making the news. And it wasn't just Democrats either. The thing was, when Donald Trump downplayed the virus, his supporters also heard that message and took it to heart, repeating it and living it out by refusing to mask and continuing to hold large weddings, funerals, and informal parties and get-togethers as if there was no virus at all. And because Trump couldn't stop himself from obtaining his narcissistic supply, he resumed his in-person rallies that he briefly paused earlier on in the pandemic. While the numbers of infected and dead continued to climb, he packed people into small spaces where the vast majority of these supporters were not masked. And those people would get infected and spread it to others. And his evangelical supporters took this on too, pushing their state governments to allow in-person religious worship and meeting for in-person services indoors, no social distancing, no masks, with religious leaders basically telling their congregants that the virus was a political hoax. It's not that deadly. And even if it was, God would protect them. So no worries, y'all. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. See Deuteronomy 6.16, Matthew 4.7, and Luke 4.12. It's hard for me to take the condemnations of conservative evangelicals to heart when they live as if they don't believe for themselves what they preach to everyone else. Nevertheless, even more people were dying. Stories of pastors and other church leaders and congregants laughing off COVID, thinking the virus is a joke. And days or weeks later, they're complaining of symptoms. And then their obituary is posted in the newspaper or a memorial post is made on Facebook. It's incredibly sad. Some might say they deserve this. They trusted Donald Trump. They believed in a proven liar and they downplayed the danger of a virus that took their own lives. But I don't think it's funny at all. It's sad. It's sad for those they left behind. A parent, a grandparent, a child, an aunt, uncle, cousin, friend, no longer here on this earth. And it's sad that some Americans, including many Christians, 
have gone all in on Donald Trump to the point that it became worth it to them to lose their lives for it. There are people who had to suffer without the top flight healthcare Donald Trump himself, as well as other members of his regime received when they eventually tested positive. The deaths of these people may be the worst day of their living families' lives, but to Donald Trump, it's just another Tuesday. It affects virtually nobody. The coronavirus pandemic became a double-edged sword for Donald Trump as it got closer and closer to the election, an election where he and Vice President Mike Pence would be facing a dyed-in-the-wool centrist Democrat and former Vice President Joe Biden, as well as his slightly more progressive but still fairly centrist running mate, U.S. Senator Kamala Harris. Democrats were more likely than Republicans to take COVID-19 seriously, so they were much more likely to favor mail-in ballots, and some states made obtaining absentee ballots easier than in previous years, generally by relaxing restrictions on eligibility. So in other words, some states that may have previously required an excuse for an absentee ballot relaxed that requirement due to the pandemic. On top of that, Donald Trump relentlessly attacked the integrity of mail-in ballots using false information as he sent mail-in ballot applications to his supporters. But even with him sending those applications, his attacks led his supporters to distrust mail-in or absentee ballots and opt for early voting and in-person voting instead. So the situation as a whole led to the conditions that made it easier to vote. And here's where the double-edged sword comes in. Donald Trump was able to get his supporters out in full force. 74 million votes, 11 million more than he got in 2016. But unlike 2016, his opponents also came out in full force to ensure he didn't get a second term. And there were more of us than there were of them. More than 81 million of us and in the right places so the Electoral College wouldn't end up working against us. More Americans came out to vote for Joe Biden than any presidential candidate in U.S. history. I'm well aware that many Americans voted for Joe Biden because they fully support him. But there were also many people who voted for Joe Biden, not because they liked Joe Biden as a candidate, but because better him than Donald Trump. There are a lot of reasons to oppose Donald Trump. His family separation mandate and the caging of children to be assaulted by Border Patrol. His willingness to give verbal comfort on many sides, on many sides and support boys, stand back and stand by to white supremacists and right-wing extremist groups. His apparent hatred for individuals and groups that oppose police brutality, his giant tax scam, not to mention his sucking up to authoritarian leaders such as Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un, Jair Bolsonaro, and Xi Jinping while distancing our country from our allies in Europe, the Middle East, and elsewhere. But I would contend that Donald Trump would have still been reelected but for COVID-19. Of course, the existence of the virus was not his fault, but the way he responded was completely his fault. If Donald Trump had at least responded decently to the pandemic, it didn't have to be a stellar response just decently, he would have won. 
If he had responded at least the way George W. Bush responded to 9-11, and this isn't endorsing Bush's response to 9-11 either. I oppose the wars raged overseas, especially the war in Iraq back then, and I still do. These wars ended up being quagmires and led to the eventual creation of ISIS. But Bush did at least sort of act as if he cared about the lives lost in the September 11th attacks, regardless of if the states affected by the attacks were states that voted for him or not. As a matter of fact, two of the three states where 9-11 occurred supported Al Gore in 2000. If Trump at least made a positive presidential effort, he would have won. But instead, he actively made the pandemic worse and made a point to use it to punish those who didn't support him and reward those who did. But even that turned out badly for him eventually because of that because of the valiant efforts of targeted states and his need for crowds to praise him got in the way. Also, let's take a quick look at the Black Lives Matter protests. George Floyd, a black man in Minneapolis who was murdered by police on video, was not the first person, nor unfortunately the last, who would be murdered by the American police state. But two factors led to worldwide protests. The fact that this was on video, which was available shortly after the event, made a huge difference. The pandemic was another factor, in a couple of ways. First of all, with so many more people being at home, working from home, not being able to go out due to lockdowns, stay-at-home orders, and quarantines, more people were glued to the news and social media, so more people saw the video than would have otherwise. Also, with people being cooped up at home, some having lost their jobs through furloughs and layoffs, and some states beginning to relax their stay-at-home orders around the same time, some saw this as an opportunity to make their voices heard and at the same time expel their energy for a good cause. It was the perfect storm that led to widespread protests. Protests that Donald Trump later began to push the authoritarian envelope in attempting to quell. That part, I think, made many on the American left acutely aware that even if centrist Joe Biden wasn't an optimal candidate, leaving Donald Trump in office for another four years was not an option we could live with. A big question mark going into the election was if Joe Biden could use the anger many Americans had with Trump and capitalize on it. Typically, it's difficult to win an election based more on anger against your opponent than support for you. John Kerry's candidacy in 2004 is a perfect example of that. He was a centrist who didn't really stand out much. And while there were a lot of people who didn't like George W. Bush, and I know it's hard for those of us old enough to have lived through those days to remember just how unpopular Bush was at that point, given what we'd gone through with Donald Trump. But yes, people couldn't stand W. But that hate for W wasn't enough to motivate people to vote for John Kerry. In general, it's a bad idea to run a milquetoast candidate and hope people hate your opponent enough to come out to vote for you. But Donald Trump was just that awful. 
and the coronavirus pandemic and everything that came along with it was that straw that broke the camel's back. There were also amazing organizers in a number of states, including the swing states, that went for Biden in the general election that aided in the amazing turnout for the Democrats. So on November 3rd, Donald Trump lost the election. It took several days to sort out, but he lost. Joe Biden won. Joe Biden won decisively. Unfortunately, as of this recording, Donald Trump still refuses to concede the election. He's not required to. It is what it is. But he, his regime, many congressional Republicans, and most of his supporters have hitched themselves to the idea that Donald Trump won. And this would be reflected in the results except for fraud, unauthorized rule changes, and major irregularities, particularly as it relates to mail-in ballots held by the swing states Joe Biden won. And they believe that the remedy for this is redoing the election their way or otherwise giving the win to Trump. I am not going to spend a bunch of time giving air to these allegations. When anyone brings up these allegations, my response is that if there is evidence of these problems to the degree that it impacted the election, this evidence should be presented in a court of law. Donald Trump, supposed billionaire, and the Republican Party, one of the two major parties in the United States, between these two entities and those affiliated with one, the other, or both, there have been nearly five dozen cases brought in relation to this election, and almost all of them have been thrown out. The one that was decided in the GOP's favor related to poll watchers, and that was remedied during the vote count. Trump has gone on and on about problems with elections, saying it's bigger than him. Look, I'm not going to cape for electronic voting machine companies like Dominion and Smartmatic. I'm of the opinion that we should use paper ballots, or at least machines that have paper backups, and any electronic voting machines and equipment used to tally votes should not be connected to the internet. But here's the thing. If Donald Trump and the Republican Party had a problem with these machines, they had time to address it. Prior to the election, a bill was passed by the House intended to ensure the security of the 2020 election, but the Republicans in the Senate blocked it. And it wasn't like Trump supported the bill anyway. They only care now because Trump lost. And in at least one of these losing lawsuits, admitted as such. As Donald Trump continues to lose case after case, all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, it becomes increasingly clear that his bid to stay in office is a farce, and he will not get his precious second term. And he is now said to be engaging in more desperate measures, including allegedly meeting with sycophants in the White House to discuss martial law and the military holding redo elections in the swing states he lost. No longer content in simply posting Trump-Pence signs on their lawns, his supporters are also becoming increasingly emboldened, including the Proud Boys storming Washington, D.C., ripping up Black Lives Matter signs, chanting, whose streets are streets, and attacking two black churches. Such race riots, because that's what something like this is in the original sense of the term. These race riots could be a harbinger of worse to come. There have been a number of liberal and leftist commentators who have been uncomfortable with the idea 
that what is happening in the United States is an attempted coup. It's easier to say it's a grift, and they're not wrong. Donald Trump's entire presidency has been a grift, and he's continuing the grift by leeching off his supporters, many of whom are suffering during the pandemic, and rewarding those who refused to testify against him in his impeachment hearings with presidential pardons, like the criminal-in-chief he is. But why can't it be both? He has not just rewarded his cronies or taken money from his followers to pay his debts, claiming it's for stopping the steal. He has also replaced top positions in the Pentagon with his people and has engaged in other last-minute replacements in key government positions, which make no sense if he was truly planning on leaving office soon. The Pentagon replacements in particular are truly troubling, as this could signal an attempt to use the military in some kind of plot or series of plots to overthrow the duly elected incoming government. These are huge red flags. What astounds me is not the actions of Donald Trump and his sycophants or the actions of his most extremist supporters. What astounds me is how apparently shocked Democrats, centrists, liberals, and even some progressives are about this behavior. Donald Trump has gotten progressively worse over the past four years, to be sure. And some never-Trump and liberal political commentators have said not to normalize Trump's actions pretty early on, and several have called Trump's regime as a slide into eventual authoritarianism. But it's one thing not to normalize Trump's actions. Of course, we don't want to do that. But it's another thing entirely to continually be surprised and shocked as if we had no idea Trump could be so bad or that close to half the American population could come along for the ride and never get off, no matter how unethical, how unhinged, how bigoted, how violent, how separated from reality it got. We would do well not to forget. As many of us look back to Nazi Germany and the Holocaust or similar nationalist or authoritarian regimes and say to ourselves that Hey, we would be part of the resistance in hiding Jews in Roma from the SS. That took years over a decade for Nazi Germany to get to the final solution. What we would be doing back then is what we are doing right now. In this country, there are a lot of people who are having a really tough time allowing themselves to face just how bad things are in this country right now. And I can't say I blame them. I try not to think about it too hard myself most days because the reality is pretty horrifying. I think most Americans are like that to some degree. Within that group of people, there's a sizable subgroup within it that want for things to be normal so bad that they're willing to overlook what is right in front of our faces to get back to normalcy. Now, of course, for a number of marginalized groups in the United States, normalcy isn't Trump bad, but it's still not good. But I do think there are some people who are longing for normalcy maybe a bit too much. And while I am relieved that Joe Biden won, my concern is that potentially that's the kind of person we've elected. On one hand, Biden understands he has a mandate. On the other hand, he doesn't seem to have the hunger to do what needs to be done to stamp out the authoritarian threat. 
time will tell if that's the case. But when it comes to leaving the outgoing Trump criminal enterprise no quarter, fighting white supremacy and right-wing extremism as terrorist threats to our society, or achieving other important policy goals, we need to make sure we hold Joe Biden and his administration accountable. I don't expect for Biden to remain as president more than one term, not because he won't be reelected and not because of anything violent. But the presidency ages those who take it seriously. It seems to have aged most modern presidents, with the notable exception of Donald Trump, who only seemed to age once he found out he lost. Joe Biden is 78 years old going into his first term. While he seems to be in reasonably good health, the presidency is a lot. It's a lot for anyone. And I'm glad that someone like Kamala Harris, who has shown herself to be strong when she needs to be and gets things done, will be vice president. But I do hope that Biden can do what he needs to do to finish off the authoritarian threat once and for all and to help the American people get through this pandemic with competent leadership. My hope is that 2021 will be infinitely better than 2020. My prayer is that we can get through next year happier and healthier. Whether the regime or administration we live under values your life or not, please know that your life matters. Thank you very much for listening to Pastor Podcast. Whether this was your first episode or you've been listening for a long time, I truly appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen. Check out potstirrerpodcast.com, the one-stop shop for everything related to Potstirrer Podcast, and follow me on Twitter at PotstirrerCast. Happy holidays. If you celebrate Christmas, Merry Christmas. And if you live in Georgia, make sure you vote in the January 5th runoff election. The balance of the U.S. Senate and Joe Biden's presidential agenda and any hope to see anything get done depend on it. I'm Jay Poole. Have a safe, healthy, and enjoyable holiday season. And we'll be back at it in 2021.